And uh, before we read 1 Kings chapter 18, let's just kind of refresh and just give you a, a, a reminder of what was taking place uh, in that, that part of the world, uh, what the events that were leading up to this the showdown between uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It was after the death of Solomon that Israel was divided. Who should rule over us as king? So there was almost a civil war that took place and a division that took place. They couldn't agree on who should rule over us as a king. So the nation split in two. You have Israel in the northern region, and then you have Judah in the southern region, and then Jeroboam was the first king of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. And since there was hostilities uh, between these two nations, even though they're brothers and sisters, they're family, that, you know, family sometimes fights the worst, right? So there was this hostility that existed, and it made it difficult for worshipers in the northern kingdom to, to travel down to Jerusalem and worship. And not only that, there was a lot of just friction and distension, and there was distance. So Jeroboam had this bright idea that uh, instead of our people going down to Jerusalem to worship, we'll build places of worship throughout the, the northern kingdom, and he even appointed a priesthood. Again, sounds like a prudent idea, a logical idea, but it was a bad idea because it wasn't a God idea. And so what this did was actually led to a problem. And the problem was this, Israel was led into sin. Why? Because they were distanced from the temple in Jerusalem, they embraced idols, and they began to worship foreign gods. So let's now fast forward from that moment after the, the kingdom has divided. Sixty years have passed, and the altar of the Lord at Mount Carmel has fallen into disrepair. And it wasn't uh, uh, long uh, that uh, people began to, to walk away from these places of worship that were established for the Lord to worship. They began to abandon these places, and they began to turn to the gods of the nations around them, began to worship idols. So one reason why the altars around the northern kingdom had fallen into disrepair was not only that they stopped going to Jerusalem to worship, but also because the actions of King Ahab. I just want to read from, you, read from 1 Kings 16 first. Remember, as you read through the book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, usually at the beginning of each chapter or each uh, king, there is like a summary of that king. He did good in the eyes of the Lord. He did uh, evil in the eyes of the Lord. So this is what the Bible says about Ahab. Now, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He's not a good king. Verse 31, it came to pass as... Though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took a wife, Jezebel, that daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So this king just decided, I'm not going to worship the Lord. I'm just going to worship Baal. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, which is obviously the capital of the northern kingdom. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God to, of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And I just want to pause there for a moment and say this. Leadership does have a spiritual impact upon a nation. Leadership has an impact on a church. It has an impact in the spiritual world. It has an impact in the secular world. And I'm just saying this, that when you have a corrupt system, corrupt leaders, and you have a church or a, a group of people that are, that are supposed to be following God, not following God, it has a ripple effect, a major effect upon that nation. And so when we read the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, 
I want you to see the parallels between the spiritual condition of Israel during that time and the spiritual condition of our nation today. Israel was backslidden and was being led by a king who was leading them further and further away from God. As a result, the people abandoned the altar of the Lord. You know, no longer were the people going there, uh, going to the altar of the Lord to offer sacrifices. No longer were they going to the altar of the Lord to inquire of the Lord, which means they had stopped going there to pray. The people had stopped going to the altar to worship God. And so rather than closing the book on these people who are his people, rather than close the book harshly on them and judge them, he doesn't do that. What does he do? He sends Elijah. And what does he inspire Elijah to say? Elijah calls the nation to repentance and to return to the Lord. And let's go back down to 1 Kings chapter 18. Now look at verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter or waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone and left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it into pieces, in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Now this time, Baal is the most popular of the of the gods in the, the nations around Israel. And so it was natural for the Israelites to be sucked in by the world and to gravitate towards Baal. Israel drifted away from God, and they, they started drifting to these foreign gods. So it, it made sense. It's not good sense, but it, it, you understand why it took place. You know, Elijah asked the people, how long are you going to waver between these two opinions? And really, how long are you going to waver between the world and the kingdom of God? Church, likewise, how long are we going to waver between two opinions? We can't waver between serving the Lord and serving ourselves. It will never work. We can't waver between serving the Lord and serving this world at the same time. It will never work. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either, for either he will hate the one and love the other. You say, that's, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? But just focus on this one then or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And honestly, you can take that word mammon, which is the Aramaic word for, God, or for riches and, and property and that type of stuff, and you can really take that out and put anything else in there. It doesn't matter. You can't serve God and you fill in the blanks. You will despise one and be loyal to the other. You can't serve ourselves, our wants, our desires, other people, money, wealth, fame, and try to serve God at the same time. It will never work. We'll be devoted to one or the other. And frankly, we won't be devoted to God if we waver between the two. We'll always gravitate towards the flesh. When we aren't devoted to God first, the altar of the Lord in our lives falls into disrepair. We get busy. We become tired. We get distracted. We become frustrated. Whatever reason it is, the world gains our loyalty and we abandon, we abandon the altar for a more convenient time. When the altar of the Lord is abandoned, the voice of the God becomes silent, becomes distant. And look at this in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 24. 
Again, Elijah says this, then call, you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. We're talking about prayer. Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, you pray to Baal, and I'll pray to the Lord, and the God who answers, well, he's God. When was the last time you came to the altar, or made an altar, and heard the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to you? When is the last time you got in that place with the Lord, just you and him, and you heard the voice of God speaking to you? The prophets of Baal went first. They began to pray and prayed fervently until evening, crying out to Baal, but there's no answer. There's no fire from heaven. After the prophets of Baal did everything they could do to encourage Baal to speak, but we know Baal can't speak. He's not a god. Elijah steps forward and says, hey, guys, it's my turn. It's my, let me try this. Here's what Elijah says in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Please pay attention to those words. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Before Elijah offers a sacrifice on that altar, what does he do? He repairs the altar of the Lord. In the Old Testament, altars were obviously constructed of stone. The stones had to be large enough, strong enough to to hold the sacrifice, but also to withstand fire. In the New Testament, we think of altars as this place around the front, or maybe the benches that you have, or whatever furniture or construction you have at the front of a church, we consider that the altar, and it is an altar. But the altar is much more than a place in a church. The altar is more than a piece of furniture. The altar is more than stone. The altar for us and each and every one of us, if you are born again, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, the place where the altar is at all times is right here. Right here in your heart. That's why a person can repent of their sins, receive Christ as Savior, experience new birth, receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can go on and on and on. And you don't have to be in a temple. You don't have to be in a building. With that said, though, with that said, this place is important. This place around the front that we we classify as the altar is very important. And it's also a place where you can meet with God. You can meet with God at an altar wherever you want, but you can meet with God right here at this altar. God is not limited to a physical structure like an altar. I understand that. But make no mistake, The altar in a church serves great importance. If if the altar of the church is broken down, it will have a devastating effect on the church, but it will have an even more devastating effect on people outside of this church. The altar is a place where you can present yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to what? Present your bodies or present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service to God or service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When a church ignores an altar, it becomes more inwardly focused. All that matters is what takes place here. And we become very religious And we lose our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And then we also lose our compassion for the community. 
Because all we want to do is come to church, check in, check out, don't mess with my day too much, because I'm busy. Hold the assembly of God. It's time for us to repair the altar in the house of the Lord. When we neglect the altar in our lives, we stop presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And that hinders the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The altar is a place of sacrifice, and we present ourselves a living sacrifice. The altar is a place of humility. It's a place where God exchanges humility for grace, and don't you need grace? If you want to experience change and transformation in your life, you're going to need grace. You're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are going to need grace. The altar is a place where if we genuinely pray this, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. If we, I mean, just not, not as some axiom or some proverb, but something we truly mean. We present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. Lord, not my will, but yours be accomplished through me. We are presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's where God sees that humility, and he supplies you with abundance of grace. But we get so busy. I, I don't really have time for this. We've got to be so careful, church, because church can become so, so comfortable, so convenient, so familiar, that we lose that sensitivity. The altar is that place where we come and humble ourselves, and we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. On the altar of sacrifice, we lay down our pride, we lay down our ego, our desires, and we leave them there, and we walk away. But we don't want to do that. We want to lay down that stuff at the altar, and and our way out, we just kind of want to grab it and just kind of tuck it in our pocket and keep it. That's not being a living sacrifice. During the ministry of Elijah, the people had turned away from the altar of the Lord. And they were conforming to the nations around them. God had called those people out from those people. God had selected the Hebrews out of the peoples of this world and selected them as his people, his special people. And what did they do? They turned their backs on God. They go right back to the world. Likewise, God has called each and one of us out of this world. If we've experienced new birth, we are sons and daughters of God. We don't belong to this world. We belong to God's family. God calls, or the Bible calls us a peculiar people. Yet in most situations, the distinction between ourselves and this world, it's not so noticeable. Why? Because we aren't presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. We're not being transformed by the Holy Spirit. We're conforming to this world. If we neglect the altar and our flesh isn't crucified daily, and if you're like me, daily just isn't enough, sometimes by the hour, we get wanderlust and we start revisiting those places in our past, those places that are familiar to us in our flesh. And that's what's happening in the church throughout our nation. We are wavering between two opinions. The Holy Spirit is asking us, how long are we going to waver between those opinions? And some churches are responding to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for that. They're, they're responding with repentance and seeking God's face. And God is genuinely visiting those places with his presence. And church, we need the presence of the God in this temple that is constructed of clay that God has built. But we also need the presence of, the God, of God in this church that is constructed by the hands of men. Like Elijah, we need to repair the altar in our lives. Once Elijah repaired the altar, the altar was ready to receive the sacrifice, and the sacrifice was laid upon the altar, and Elijah prayed these words in verse 36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, 
Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are a God, are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Verse 37, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Elijah doesn't pray against Ahab. Elijah doesn't look at the people and say, they're nasty sinners, and they deserve hell. And I'll be glad when they go to hell. He doesn't pray that, does he? Elijah doesn't pray complaining. God, why did you send me to these miserable people? None of that. What does Elijah do? He prays. He prays for his countrymen. Elijah intercedes for his people. He asks the Lord, turn back their hearts to you, Lord. And our nation, if it's going to experience real revival, and I don't mean flakes and, and shakes and, and kooky stuff and spooky stuff, I'm talking about genuine repentance, genuine renewal. If we're ever going to experience that, the church must reestablish the altar in their lives. We must offer ourselves on this altar to God as a living sacrifice. We must come before the altar of the Lord in prayer. Key, key to a move of God. If not, we're going to find ourselves going through the motions of religion, but never experiencing the presence of God, never experiencing the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit. Our nation is adrift. That isn't a political statement. That is a spiritual fact. I can say this. Our community is adrift, and I would say our church is adrift. We have plunged ourselves deeper into sin, deeper into selfishness, just deeper in everything other than God. This nation will continue to sink in the cesspool of sin until the church gets back to the altar in repentance and starts interceding for this nation. Like many of you, I'm, I'm frustrated. Don't you get frustrated when you turn on the news? I mean, you can turn Fox News on, you get frustrated. You can turn on CNN, you get frustrated. Turn off the news. I'm frustrated with the crime rate. I'm sure you all are. I'm, I'm frustrated with, with, with the perverse sexuality that we have in our nation. But rather than going to social media and raising a stink, the people who all agree with you are just as negative as we are, instead of doing that, why don't we just get on our knees and start praying for those people? Won't we pray, take all that useless criticism and just put it aside and begin to intercede for these people? Rather than do that, won't we just say, hey, we should pray. Well, there's a novel idea. We should pray. If we really want to see God work in our nation, we should pray. When was the last time you prayed earnestly for the people of this community? When is the last time you read the news or you read a story or you, lo and behold, you go to the local Facebook page, you just see just stupidity. And rather than being angry, you just say, Lord, we need you. Lord, our community needs you desperately. Let's go back to the time when Solomon was king. So let's go back 60 years again. Just move back 60 years before the nation of Israel divided into two. 60 years before Rehoboam became king. Solomon was tasked with the responsibility of building the temple. And under his leadership and guidance, the temple of the Lord was completed. And, and after it was built, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And after Solomon dedicated the temple, this is what takes place during that dedication service. And this is 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1. And when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the glory of the Lord filled the temple, that physical structure. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. 
And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And if you're offering a sacrifice, there's always an altar. Solomon prayed, and the fire of God came down. And afterwards, the king and the people, they offer these sacrifices on the altar. Again, God fills the presence, of, or fills the temple with his presence. God is amongst his people. It's really a powerful moment. But after that dedication takes place, and the people return home, Solomon has this encounter with the Lord. Same chapter, same story. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. And the way I read that, I think it's that night. And said to him, now this is interesting. All that takes, fire has come down. The glory of the Lord has filled the temple. The people have celebrated. They've worshiped. They've bowed down. It's incredible. I'm sure it would be powerful to see. But this is what God whispers to Solomon. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Look at this word, when. So this is going to take place good or bad when i shut up the heaven and there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land when remember when and send pestilence among who the world my people there's there's a reason why a nation suffers pestilence there's a reason why a nation will suffer drought and i'm not only speaking in physical terms i'm speaking also in spiritual terms Spiritually, our, our nation is dry. Our nation is dry. It's in need of rain. It's in need of the presence of the Lord. Our, our fields that once thrived are now desolate. When this happens, this is how we should respond. If, and that word again is huge in the sentence, if, who, if who, if my people who are called by my name will do what? humble themselves. Now remember, I want you to think of the atmosphere. It's desolation, and we're thinking of spiritual terms. Dry, desolate, pestilence, our, our, our nation just in, in spiritual shambles. But yet God puts his focus who? On those people? No. He puts the focus on his people. If my people who are called by me will do what? Humble themselves. Why should we humble ourselves? They're the ones that need to humble our, themselves. And we get it all wrong, because that's what religion does to us. It blinds us to the fact my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and repent turn from their wicked ways then if we do this then God will do this then I will hear then I will hear from heaven if if my people humble themselves pray seek my face turn from their wicked ways then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin, not their sin, their sin, and heal their land. God is calling our nation to repentance, but that call of repentance doesn't start out there. It starts right here. It always starts with God's people. It always starts with the house of God. It starts with the church humbling ourselves before the altar of the Lord. And that's why this place around the front is important. This place in your heart is important. Both of them are equally important. If we try to pray and seek God's face without humbling ourselves, the heavens become brass. 
And if you've ever had this happen, you know it's true. If, and sometimes you don't really realize it until there's a move of God in your life, until finally God does the, one of those moments. And you're like, wait, the problem's not them, the problem's me. And it's like the floodgates opening, and like God starts to speak, and you can start to hear that the, your prayers don't just bounce off the ceiling. But if we humble ourselves and repent first and then set ourselves to seeking God's face, God will heal our land. And church, don't you want to see our land, our nation, our people healed? If not, what's wrong with your heart? You just want to live for God yourselves and forget about everyone else, be isolated on an island. If you want an island, go buy one. Go live there by yourselves. But the rest of us want to see the world saved. As a result, our, our humility and our prayer of the Holy Spirit will bring conviction back into this world. See, we think we go on social media and we convince people that they're nuts. We can convince people that they need to switch parties. It's not going to happen. I've never seen one Facebook convert yet as in those terms of arguing. It just caused a bitter divide. So this is what we need to do. We have to pray, and when we seek God's face, God will heal our land. How does he do that? He brings conviction back to people who feel no conviction. People who have embraced darkness, who have hardened themselves to sin, or with sin. If we're really about, let's say, transgender athletes, or just rampant perverse sexuality, if we're really concerned about that, truly concerned, humble yourself, Repent, pray, and seek God's face. Again, I know it's counterintuitive, but we don't operate on a fleshly level, and that's our problem. We always try to, we always try to figure it out from here, but we have to figure it out from God's Word. And it's a spiritual answer. This fallen world isn't going to get right by itself. It isn't going to get better. The fallen world needs the church at the altar interceding for them. Otherwise, these people are going to split hell wide open, church. The Holy Spirit can, in a twinkling eye, do more than we can ever think and imagine. Just if we just start praying. I mean, you can try to convince, you can try to shake people, you can try to wake people. You can do everything in your power possible to get a hold of their lives. But it's amazing when you just hush and pray and seek God's face for them, intercede for them. God can change them in an instant. And if you don't think so, this is living proof right here. I told you this before, I had no desire, did grow up in church, had no desire to be a pastor. Mom got saved, mom starts praying for son, son gets saved, completely different story. God changed me. Week before, I'm like, I'll never go to church with you, church is stupid. You know, I don't need to serve God to go, I don't need to go to church to go to heaven. I've said all the same things that everyone else tells us. Told it right to my mom's face. She'd get a little more bolder, I'd get a little bit more bolder back. What do you know? Lo and behold, something changed. What is that? It's called conviction. And it's called the Holy Spirit. And this is what we need to pray for. We need to pray for our nation. But it all starts with the people of God. It starts with us repairing the altar in our lives. At that altar, we humble ourselves, we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. At the altar, in humility, our hearts are right with God, and we pray, we seek God's face. What does he do? He heals our land. Prayer is the key factor. The altar in the Bible is a place of sacrifice. The altar in the Bible is a place of worship and adoration. The altar in the Bible is a place where we draw near to God. Sadly, today, in many churches, the altar has been ignored. It's demolished, and I mean more than furniture. It means that there is no plea from the pulpit. And quite frankly, there is no desire from the pew or the chairs. Isaiah 56, 7 says this, Even them... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful 
in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Boy, where does that sound familiar? In Matthew 21, 13, Jesus going into the temple. And there are all the money changers there. And he drives them out with the whip. And he said, as it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That's exactly what he's quoting right here, that verse. I love coming to church. I love the fellowship. I love to worship. I love to sing praises. I love to hear God's word. I love, to, I love to preach and teach God's word. But first and foremost, it has to be a house of prayer. Jesus said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now you can look at that verse and say, that doesn't apply to us. And I understand the context. I understand his words. I know what he's saying, who he's saying it to. But are we robbing God by not making this place a house of prayer? Are we robbing our community because of our prayerlessness? My challenge to you is very simple this morning. I'm calling on you to humble yourselves first and foremost. Because without that happening, you will never get to the next step. Because pride, ego, understanding, resistance, all that will, will come forward. And it will block what we need to do next. Humble yourself first and foremost. Humble yourselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. And then you'll be able to repent. And then you'll be able to see where I need to repent. Because sometimes we have blinders on. Sometimes we have these blind spots. And we don't think anything's wrong with us. Everything else is wrong with the world. But when we humble ourselves, we have a new set of eyes. And we think, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, my flesh has been staring me in my own face. I don't even recognize it. I'm calling on you to humble yourselves, to repent, to dedicate yourselves to the Lord wholeheartedly. I'm challenging you to rebuild the altar in your life. I'm challenging this church to repair the altar by engaging with God in this space in worship and prayer. Challenge you to lay down yourself on the altar as a living sacrifice and do it daily. And I believe this with all my heart, church. If we humble ourselves, if we repent, if we seek God's face in prayer, the Holy Spirit will change our church. You say, what's wrong with our church? Nothing, but it needs to change. It has to change. And in fact, if you know flesh, if you know church well, you know this. If we don't change, if we don't move forward and keep being changed by the Holy Spirit, we go back. And back is never good. If we humble ourselves, repent, ask God, seek God's face and ask him in prayer, he will heal our land. And I believe this is what happened. He will change our church. He will change our families. He can change our community. Darkness will lose its hold. People will get saved. The people you're trying to reach, the people you're trying to witness to, it begins to change. Why? Because the atmosphere begins to change. Why? Because the people of God are praying. You know, think about this. There, we have some discipleship options that are available that I really wish you would engage in. But I understand this. You're not going to until you pray. Because you don't see the value. All you see is another time spot. I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Yet the things that are most important to you are staring right at you. The things that give you life. The things that can manage your time even better. The, those times that you have with God can make this life so much better. And I don't mean like... In the sense that you get saved, God's just trying to make your ride better. I'm talking about change. Just think about this. If, if we begin to pray more seriously, you know, asking people to serve at Vacation Bible School, for example, doesn't have to be a chore. It just happens. Why? Because our hearts are changed. We see it's just an opportunity to serve. Begging or praying for people to give, tithe, give the missions. doesn't have to happen if we're praying. I truly believe that with all my heart. 
I think I've finally come to this place rather than trying to convince, trying to go to like people on social media and just pound the pavement, just, just get you to pray. I'm just going to get you to pray, and if you don't want to pray, that's on you. But I understand this, when you pray, God will change you. If you truly, honestly, humble yourselves, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, and seek his face, everything's taken care of. If we pray consistently, God, God will speak. And I'm telling you, I'm not devaluing teaching or preaching. If we have these moments where we get our hearts right with God, and we humble ourselves, and we seek God's face, God can do more in an instant in an encounter with you than I can preach in a thousand sermons. And here's why. When God speaks, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, will turn from their wicked ways, right? Then I will speak, right? And you'll hear then. If I can get that moment to happen in your lives, everything else will be taken care of. I can preach a thousand sermons and try to, to move the needle, so to speak, in the right direction, but if I can get you in that place, God can change it in an instant. Church, it's time for us to repair the altar in our lives. It's time for us to lay down our lives on this altar as a living sacrifice. And it's time we seek the Lord in prayer.